special and a great pleasure uh, uh, to, for me to introduce our uh, speaker today, Jian Tual, uh, who would give the uh, fifth and I think the uh, final for this academic year, the final talk of soci sociological imaginations. Um, Jian Tual is a uh, 1997 graduate of sociology department, if I'm not wrong. And I uh, emphasize this uh, because uh, we shared the same campus with Jian. Uh, and uh, it was a campus of agitation uh, and at times grim moments in mid 90s uh, in the midst of uh, war. Uh, so I have my memories of sharing this campus with him. Uh, at the same time, I know many of you have lots of fond memories uh, with Jian, and I'm sure Jian has lots of memories. Uh, uh, over the years, uh, I followed uh, his work over the years, he's become a very prolific scholar and a very admirable and generous uh, colleague and friend and uh, someone also who has kept his ties, uh, retained his ties with the department and the university. I remember, for instance, a talk uh, that you uh, gave, Jian. Uh, I don't know whether it was 2016, 15, maybe even 14. It was, I think, just before your uh, third book release uh, that you gave a, a very uh, inspiring talk in the rectorate, in the old rectorate or old library <laughs> uh, space. Was it 2014? I don't remember the year. I remember the talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I do remember the talk also. Uh, uh, currently, he's professor of sociology at UC Berkeley. Uh, and he works on politics, economic change, and uh, religion. Uh, his first book, Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism, uh, which came out in 2009 and which became kind of a, uh, a very influential book in his field, uh, studied proto-capitalist Islam and its popularization among the poor. Uh, in his second book, 2016 book, uh, The to Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism, uh, Tual analyzed Islamic movements and regimes in Turkey, Egypt, Tunisia, and Iran. Uh, and his most recent book, Caring for the Poor, came out in 2017, and it discusses liberalism's uneasy relationship with charitable ethics. Um, he now explores populism and revolution in contemporary world system. So this is like a trilogy, maybe. I have channeled uh, new uh, energy and ideas uh, to concepts such as passive revolution, uh, capitalist hegemony, uh, Islamic liberalism, 
consent of popular classes, and they've certainly opened up new perspectives and debates on a comparative sociology uh, or sociological analysis of uh, regime change in Turkey. Uh, today, uh, Jian's talk is yet another contribution to this vibrant path of research. The title is Politicized Mega Projects and Public Sector Inventions, Mass Consent Under Neoliberal Statism. Uh, after the talk, we'll have our usual question and commentary uh, session. Uh, I ask uh, kindly the participants to use the raise hand uh, option in reactions when they pose their question or comments. We might also uh, from maybe chat signal you that wh when the connection is not working perfectly, we might signal you to close your uh, videos because we started a little bit shaky. Uh, right now it's going okay, uh, but just uh, as a note, uh, I need to say that. Uh, and finally, I would like to thank uh, Zafar Yenal, who initiated this series of sociological imaginations talks this year, and also our assistants, uh, Turgut Keskinturk and Damla Baran, for organizing uh, these talks, it, putting the labor and time into this. It, it does, I mean, right now, it really does take a lot of labor and energy to organize anything on campus. Uh, but this has been a very, uh, I think, vibrant series so far, and we hope we would continue next year as well. So with that note, I'm uh, giving the floor to Jan uh, Tuval. Thank you very much, Jan, for that generous introduction. And uh, thank you uh, to Zafer and the whole department for uh, this invitation and for being here, this is this is really bittersweet for me, and I didn't prepare these comments. It's really bittersweet uh, seeing uh, all of you. You know, my previous instructors, my lifetime colleagues. I'm uh, like, you know, uh, I, I feel great that I'm seeing you, but it's bittersweet because of uh, the condition of Turkish higher education, uh, the siege that uh, you have been suffering. Uh, but I'm I'm honored to be here and a part of this university because of the uh, fight it's fighting. Uh, so um, I'm honored to be a part of this legacy. Okay, so let me share my screen with you. Uh, you can see this, right? So, okay. Okay, so I'll talk about politicized mega projects and the, uh, the role of the public in these uh, projects and how uh, this might or might not lead to uh, consent. And this talk and its, its focus on an analysis of Erdoganism and Trumpism is a response to the literature. So this, this is not going to be a case heavy uh, talk. Uh, it's, it's going to be heavy on the literature and I'll, I'll use these two cases to uh, discuss some problems uh, of the literature. So up until only two years ago, there was a heavy consensus, scholarly consensus, that neoliberal projects do not focus on 
providing jobs and residences, that they are apolitical. And this is a stark contrast with the mega projects of the Keynesian area, of the post-war area, uh, era, where mega projects did focus primarily on providing jobs and residences, not only to the poor, but to all classes of uh, people, maybe uh, with a focus on the, the working class. So the consensus was that under neoliberalism, mega projects have lost these functions. And especially scholars of Turkey uh, knew that this was not right. And um, many case-heavy studies drew attention to this, but uh, there hasn't been a comprehensive criticism of this consensus in the scholarship based on the fact that Erdoganist mega projects, alongside doing other things, also do focus on providing jobs and residences, however unevenly. So what does this mean? Does it mean that Turkey is moving away from neoliberalism or should we rather redefine neoliberalism and especially neoliberal mega projects? And uh, with a focus on the Trumpism case, I'll ask why other regimes that have the same intentions of providing jobs and um, other mass consent building uh, strategies through mega projects are unable to politicize mega projects to the same degree. And for the larger project, uh, project I also focus on and I'll mention these in passing, but and also in, in the paper that I'm drawing uh, for today, I just these two cases, but Russia and China um, in the background, China uh, remains important as you will see, especially in the conclusion. So I find it most uh, productive analytically to study mega projects as a special version uh, of uh, David Harvey's spatial fix. So the rush to infrastructure, uh, Harvey and Harveyans have emphasized is a method of absorbing surplus productive capital, especially in a global context where interest rates are low, occasionally negative, and there's a lot of excess capital, but it doesn't want to go to classical industry anymore. Uh, and uh, infrastructure, construction, mega projects, these are relatively easier uh, outlets in, in this you know, industry avoiding uh, world, especially if we bracket out Southeast Asia. And ba based on decades of uh, scholarship and generalizations along these lines, David Harvey argued right after Trump was elected that he would realize his mega project ambitions through deficitary spending. So not classical Keynesianism, but you know, using some Keynesian tools and mostly based on uh, deficits and PPPs. And even though I am drawing on Harvey, I am arguing that there, there is a serious blind spot in his theorization. And this, uh, the, the failure of this prediction was not just you know, one scholarly mistake or a mistake regarding one hypothesis or prediction, 
it's really had to do with with the general shape uh, of his theorization and actually with the way the neoliberal mega project as scholarship broadly you know beyond harvey has shaped up in the uh, last couple of decades and i i answer this question of you know wh where did harvey's prediction go wrong by looking at self keynesianism's limits so stealth Keynesianism is another word uh, uh, I use, and I will have to define this, of course, uh, uh, through the coming slides. Uh, it's another word I use for embedded neoliberalism or advanced, uh, the advanced neoliberalism of the post-1990s. So regarding more specifically the neo, uh, neoliberal mega project uh, literature, I, I draw heavily on Oret and Feinstein's synthetic and comprehensive review article and introduction to a, speci a special issue of International Journal, uh, Journal of Urban and Regional Research, uh, wh where they summed up uh, the, the whole subfield. And they periodized a mega project development. As you will see, this will come in really handy and I'll agree with them mostly up until the details of the third stage of mega project development. And then we'll have to open this up and we'll have to discuss where Erdoganism, where Erdoganist mega projects challenge some of the um, generalizations they make regarding the third stage. And we will then discuss whether there's a fourth stage of mega project development and whether that stage is neoliberal or not. So th those are the core analytical uh, questions I will uh, try to answer throughout this talk. So first comes Keynesian and national development developmentalist infrastructure. This is not always their wording, by the way. I mean, I'm uh, kind of uh, playing a little on their wording and I'm uh, converging so some of their po points regarding the core and the periphery. So in Keynesian and or development, national developmentalist infrastructure, we see that the state heavily weighs in. It not only shows the way and regulates, but it produces massive uh, projects of housing, bridges, roads. So th those are the things that have been called mega projects. Uh, but, but also, you know, uh, in our day, we use the word also for, you know, giant malls and now uh, things like uh, Canal Istanbul, et cetera. So th that, that was uh, pretty much um, at the core of infrastructural development up until the late 1970s in both the core and the periphery of the world system. And in the 1980s, both started to be undone, you know, both the Keynesian version of this and the developmentalist version of this. And in order to save time, I'm not going into the differences. Yeah, there are differences, but, uh, but I am emphasizing the similarities. And we see actually more convergence in the 1980s uh, and maybe early 1990s, where uh, there, there's a new appreciation of uh, squatters and self-help. So mega projects become undesirable, not only for the radical left, which used to uh, fight instances of mega project development uh, during the Keynesian era, but also for the center right and uh, partially for the center left too, um, mega projects become anathema. And uh, they, they uh, mo most of the political spectrum starts to side with uh, squatters and their self-help 
logics. And you know, this is the small is beautiful uh, uh, era for, for the radical left, uh, especially. So there, there's a radical left neoliberal uh, convergence too. But this lasts quite short. So what follows in the late 1990s and increasingly so in the 2000s is embedded neoliberalism or a late neoliberalism. And this reinforces the convergence between the core and periphery. The state comes back in and now mostly as a regulator of uh, mega projects uh, rather than producer of mega projects, but through uh, public uh, pri private partnerships, it might have some productive role here and there unevenly, but it is not a major investor or that's what the literature is telling us. Now, I don't want to do too much of this, but I'll try to highlight uh, through the next slide that this shift in mega project development went hand in hand uh, with broader embedded neoliberalism. So the post-Washington consensus divergence from the classic Washington consensus. What do we mean by that? So we have seen, even starting in the 1980s, that the government actually was never out of the picture in neoliberalism. It always had roundabout market manipulating ways of maintaining aggregate demand and spending. So th this is especially this part is emphasized more and more in the literature. So perhaps this is a little bit missing in the mega project literature, but definitely in the broader neoliberalism literature, this has been the trend of the last 10 years, especially. So uh, critical scholars of neoliberalism are now noted going beyond noticing, they're emphasizing that the government has always been either the core actor or at least one of the core actors of uh, neoliberalism. And uh, this should not come in as a surprise uh, if you step back and think about the last uh, 200 years. So all, one of the problems of classical liberalism was maintaining aggregate demand and preventing busts. And Keynesianism had prevented both problems by you know, higher wages, government spending, and market management. And neoliberalism was allegedly the end of Keynesianism. Neoliberalism had put an end to high wages and explicit government spending. But now what we know through the embedded neoliberalism, uh, privatized Keynesianism, et cetera, all of these uh, more, relatively more recent literatures of the last 10, 15 years, is that during uh, the Reagan era, for example, there was a lot of military spending. So th this was a stealth way for the government to maintain aggregate demand. But even that was quite restricted uh, when compared to what came in the 1990s through the real estate boom. Another roundabout way through which the government again maintained aggregate demand. And then through more complex financial instruments through credit card debt, household debt or of other kinds, and increasingly so mortgages, the, the government uh, increased its role in aggregate demand management. So now under, under 
this uh, umbrella, we have a better understanding of what was happening with neoliberal mega projects and why they are neoliberal, even though there, there is a lot of government intervention. So neoliberal projects of the 1990s through the 2010s serve the same purpose. And they, uh, even though they involve the government in all of these secretive and market manipulating ways, they remove governmental regulation from the realm of political contestation. Okay, so there, and the, the next important thing which goes hand in hand with this is that all of the purpose of this whole complex package is competitiveness. So all of these market manipulating mechanisms are meant to boost competitiveness, okay? Again, not jobs, not residents, not political support. This is all outside of politics. This is done for market competitiveness. It's done so that markets can function smoothly, even though the old classical Keynesian protections are uh, removed, okay? So in sum, what the literature of especially the last 10 years or so is telling us is that stealth Keynesianism deepens neoliberalization, okay? So it is true then that there is more and more Keynesianism, but this is all done under a neoliberal logic and it further neoliberalizes society. And you know th this is where I start to have problems with the literature. So it's not that you know the the, the foregoing was completely wrong. So yeah, the, there there is this self Keynesianism. But my point is that if you study er Erdoganism carefully, uh, you see that th there is more and more open developmentalism, open Keynesianism, open market manipulation, and the main orientation is increasingly the um, maintenance of political support and political mobilization rather than competitiveness. So at this point, I, I'll, I will not try to resolve the debate. I want to do that uh, semi-inductively. So I'll come to this at the very end, uh, but I'm going to further open up the, the question at this point and then uh, go into Erdoganism. So, okay, let's accept with Orat and Feinstein that there are these three stages of mega project development, Keynesian, early neoliberal, embedded neoliberal, and then possibly there is a fourth stage, um, which Erdoganism is a paragon of, okay? So, uh, but, but then the question becomes, so this is the question I'm not resolving. So does Erdoganism's politicization of mega projects and veering away from competitive logic and going into a political logic of mega project uh, production. Does, does that signify further deepening of embedded neoliberalism and self Keynesianism? Or are we at a non-neoliberal stage? Is neoliberalism done, finished in Turkey? Or would both arguments be wrong? And you, you'll see me saying some, something like that. You know, they are semi-right or semi-wrong. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to make my case at the very end. 
And are, are we likely to see a core periphery divergence again, you know, with uh, some emerging markets uh, such as Turkey, perhaps India, Hungary, uh, perhaps Russia, moving in this non-neoliberal way, uh, whereas the uh, core of world capitalism remains neoliberal. That, that's my secondary question, though. I mean, I, I really uh, want to uh, keep your uh, focus mostly on this question about whether there is a fourth distinct stage of mega project development. So what are the signs of this? Uh, you know, the, the 2010s, Erdoganism constituting a separate stage of mega project development, which would be, I, I'm sorry, this is a little confusing. I know these numbers. This would be the fourth stage of mega project development, but third stage of neoliberalism. Or perhaps, you know, neoliberalism has just two stages and now we're at a non-neoliberal stage. So wh whatever the label is, I'm going to come to that at the very end. But what are we talking about? So what are the main indicators of the distinctiveness of Erdoganist mega projects? So I want to mention really three key things. So first, Turkey's construction boom. So it's, uh, if you look at the construction industry's contribution to the GDP, Turkey is among the highest, but the highest among OECD countries. So this is why this figure is important. So all of the other figures, tables, uh, they're uh, mine and my uh, research assistants compilations, but I, I pulled this figure uh, out of the web. It's, it's really helpful because it shows you how distinct Turkey is. So the solid red line is Turkey in terms of uh, construction's contribution to GDP. And the uh, green solid line is uh, an aggregate OECD measure. And you see also here um, other quote-unquote emerging markets of comparable size. I know Mexico is a little bit bigger, uh, Poland is a little bit smaller, but they are, they are usually classified as medium-sized uh, GDP countries. And they, they are either stagnating or declining in terms of uh, their uh, construction sector uh, contribution to GDP. So Turkey is pretty distinct in this regard and maybe only comparable to Russia, really. R Russia is the most Turkish case, or maybe it's just the reverse, Turkey is the most Russian case. So that, if that's one, uh, what's two? So most of this construction is apparently private, but the state is heavily involved. Okay, no surprise, the embedded neoliberalism project, uh, uh, literature was telling us that the state is heavily involved through regulation. But wait, the Turkish state is also investing a lot. So we know all of the uh, research done on Toki. And uh, this is pretty important, even though you know, we don't have very solid numbers that we can uh, compare uh, with past decades and with other cases, unfortunately. Uh, but um, whatever we have indicates that the, the investor role of the state is no longer secondary. It's an increasing role. And it's not just investing in housing, it's building roads. Toki is building roads. Toki is building uh, sewage systems. So these mega projects are not 
only built by the uh, private sector as regulated by the state, the government is back as an investor uh, and a producer. And uh, of course we know which, and this cuts across again, um, embedded neoliberalism and this uh, last stage of neoliberalism, the, all of these uh, projects create a new bourgeoisie, a clientelistic bourgeoisie. And that, that part is not a huge surprise for the literature. What is a surprise, what does constitute a surprise for the pre-2017 or so literature, not, 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 for, uh, not for Turkish academics, but for the literature, mega projects are central to political hegemony. And I want to open that up. So hegemony is not just domination plus consent. It's also contestation. It's, you know, as, as Stuart Hall used to say, it's setting the terms of the debate, right? It's not just, you know, dominating people or provoking people. It's also determining the lines along which they will be provoked and along which, you know, they will fight street fights. So we see then, you know, three very important aspects here. Extreme concentration of wealth, the creation of a new bourgeoisie, but also, so that's the domination part. Then comes the con uh, consent part. So creation of jobs and lower middle and upper class residents for millions. And of course, that, that's the material dimension of hegemony. There's also a magical dimension of uh, hegemony, the glamor. So we know uh, how, how important uh, th this is for Erdogan's self uh, projection, you know, the, 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 the greatness, the bigness, the size of, um, of, of the bridge, the airport, uh, Canal Istanbul, all of this symbolizes the regime's strength and its imperial projection with which the masses identify, you know, this is Turkish strength. And that is the exact same thing Trump uh, tried to do through the wall and his infrastructural inf investments. So they were meant to deliver jobs and a projection of American strength. And all of this provokes contestation. So th there were a lot of protests before Gezi, but you know, Gezi is what uh, brought this to national, international uh, attention. So it was a giant mall that started the movement, but the movement kept on, or the protests, there was no exactly movement. The protests kept on targeting the bridge, uh, the, the airport, and Kanal Istanbul was also on the horizon. And likewise, regime supporters, so if, if you read regime papers during the same days, they are saying, well, the, these people are attacking the bridge. These people are attacking the airport, right? So the, the regime told its supporters, told its base that you know, it has to mobilize if need be. Ultimately, there was no need, but if need be, the, the people should mobilize against Gezi because this, is, this kind of movement is what is going to stop Turkish greatness. So not only the jobs, and uh, Turkey, but also Turkish uh, imperial symbolic strength. And the same thing happened again uh, uh, during the counter coup demonstrations and more heavily so. So uh, the newspapers and the visual 
audiovisual media of those days emphasized that the coup was uh, a movement uh, designed by imperialists against Turkey's mega projects, okay? against the bridge, against the airport, and against Canal Istanbul. And many of the streets protests uh, raised that, that message. They, they were uh, protecting the mega projects. So now let's uh, switch to the United States. So yeah, the, the, the Saudi cases here as a shadow comparison, but uh, what's more important for me is the Trump's ambition to pull up you know, this, this curve that had been declining for decades. You know, again, the sh share of construction sector GDP in total GDP, that was his promise. You know, that, that, that's what he was going to change in the American economy, first and foremost. And see, this is, there's this just a slight uptick and nothing more happens. So the, the share of uh, co the construction sector in the GDP remains stagnant, e even under the president who promises the president of, uh, to be the president of construction and infrastructure and mega projects. So the construction sector is not the driving engine of growth under Trump. The tax cuts are, and you know, as we know, tax cuts can spur the economy for a couple of years, but they can't create this, you know, AKP kind of growth, which can last for 15 years. We know that that can't last for 40 years either, but it can for 15, and that, that's not the growth that Trump created. So as importantly, so when we come to the second key aspect of what I have called the, uh, the fourth uh, stage of mega project development, the government is far away from acting as a heavyweight investor in construction in the United States. And unfortunately, I was unable to find any comparable numbers, but uh, you know the numbers are out there. In, in the US and they're uh, reachable very easily. And they, they tell a very clear story. So if you look at the total uh, per percentage of total public construction in total construction, it, it's stagnant from uh, nine, the mid 1990s till the end of the Trump term. The only change is during the Obama years as an immediate reaction against the global financial bust. So I, I call that Obama's reluctant Keynesianism. So it's not ideological Keynesianism. It's a Keynesianism that was resorted to only for a couple of years with the very clear ideological intention to remove all Keynesian techniques once stability is restored. So it's a very unlike a classical Keynesianism, where the government is not just a temporary uh, heavyweight, it is a constant heavyweight. But under Obama, this um, construction boom, uh, well, it, even that is not a boom because everything is declining so fast that uh, th that's why it appears uh, that there's a, a like sh a sharp increase in the public share, well, because 
the private uh, construction is declining so fast. So uh, there is nothing structurally big that Obama does. And uh, after Obama's tenure, Trump only restores the share of the public to uh, pre-Bush years, to the pre-2000s. So when we come to the third axis, the third uh, aspect of uh, this new stage of mega project development, can we say that hegemony or you know, domination plus consent plus contestation is shaping up around the construction sector or infrastructure? No, we can't say that. Yeah, there is some popular support for the wall, some popular fight against the wall, but despite the hopes and the fears of the American right and the American left, nothing big happened politically around the wall because there wasn't much wall built during Trump's era. So yes, something happens politically around the wall, but it's not as central as the mega, projects, mega project fights in Turkey. And there is a very core measurable aspect of this, again, uh, thanks to these uh, widely available statistics in the US. Again, some, something I, I couldn't dig up in, in the Turkish case. I, I, can't, I can't find exact numbers on how a construction employment is changing in, in Turkey. We know there are a lot of jobs. How temporary? Well, they are temporary, but you know, on the aggregates, are, are they adding up to um, strong livelihood for some construction workers? How many construction workers? Well, we don't know. But for the US, we do know, and there is nothing impressive going on under Trump. So if you look at how much Trump increased construction employment from 2016 to 2020, it's with the exact same rate that Obama increased construction employment. So where is the difference then? There is no difference between Trump as the president of infrastructure, the wall, construction, construction workers, the white working class, and Obama as somebody who didn't care at all about uh, infrastructure or uh, roads or the wall. So Trump failed then. And, and again, there are a lot of you know, easily accessible numbers. I want to rehearse them here, but he added very little to the wall and most of it was reinforcement rather than new construction. He tried to push as hard as possible, especially during his first, uh, during his last year, and it didn't happen because there's no money. Okay, he he can't get the money he wants from Republicans from his own party. So why why did Trumpist hegemony fail? Why did this building of the wall, the domination, the uh, creation of uh, construction employment, the consent? and the contestation around the wall, what, the, these three elements of hegemony, why, don't, why didn't we see them for a whole four years? Well, my entry point is Bannon, but I'll open up from there. So what I want to point out was the, these ideas were not Trump's alone. Of course, you know, coming from the construction sector, being a builder of casinos and hotels and buildings, of course, it was partially his vision. 
but the link of this, all of this construction and business ideas to actual politics came from Steve Bannon. He was the mastermind of the mega project push. And what's really important uh, for, for my analysis of ideology is that he was the one writing Trump's presidential speeches. Okay, all of this, you know, American carnage, you know, they, all the populist speeches, they all, they were all penned by Steve Bannon. And uh, he also has this very interesting uh, speech where he sounds very much like David Harvey. He says, well, look, that doesn't cite a Harvey, of course. He says, look, the interest rates are globally low. They're occasionally in the negative. This is the moment to invest in construction and infrastructure. But what's the difference from Harvey? He, the Harvey said, you know, deficit-free spending, and um, that, that would be possible. Of course, Harvey knew that half of the, at least half of the Republican Party would resist that. So he said half of the Democrats and half of the Republicans will come together and they, they will pull this off and you know, uh, Trump will create all of this uh, construction uh, employment. Didn't happen. And Bannon from very early on knew this wasn't possible just through deficitary spending. He knew he had to raise taxes on the rich. And he was very clear about this. And he was also very clear that he could only do this through authoritarianism, not through bipartisanship, not through dialogue. So given the Republican Party's current shape, as I say here, a light recourse to deficits is impossible, even in emergencies, as we saw during the pandemic. Republicans resisted even like quite necessary, very obviously necessary deficitary spending. So Steve Bannon was aware that an infrastructure turn, as Harvey calls it, required a mini revolution. Not, not necessarily like, you know, revolution in, in the uh, Scotchpolian sense, but a mini revolution, an overhaul of the entire Republican party, a takeover of the Republican party by the far right. But you, you can't do that just through the White House. You need far-right organization in the streets, in institutions, and elsewhere to push for that. So here is why the Turkish case, the Turkish contrast, is especially helpful in understanding, understanding the American case. Unlike Bannon's temporary comrade, Trump, Erdogan, you know, the Turkish president, a very different creature from Trump. Why? Because he comes from within a movement. He's not a construction tycoon. He's coming from within a far-right movement, which is swarming with the likes of Bannon. There isn't just one Bannon in, uh, in the White House, in the Turkish White House, in the Turkish parliament, in the Turkish media. There are many Bannons, many mini Heideggers walking around. And this is not just an intellectual issue, of course. It's also a street issue. There's organization. So whenever Turkish crazy projects run into trouble, the far right is able to mobilize the media, the social media, and whenever needed, the street to defend the crazy projects. So when Bannon 
tried to do something similar when he attempted to raise taxes in 2017 to fund the infrastructure craze and the re Republican neoliberals started a campaign to lynch him, there was no organized movement that could stand up for him. That's, that's the difference of the Turkish street and the American street. The American street can get mobilized along, along libertarian lines. It's far-right far libertarian lines. It's very hard, almost impossible, to mobilize the American street in favor of something like, you know, mega projects or the person who symbolizes them and wants to raise taxes on the rich, Steve Bannon. So I, I don't have uh, the time to go into, you know, the, this uh, fight between uh, Steve Bannon and, and the other uh, far-right wing of the uh, Republican Party, the far-right libertarians, but I analyze uh, this, uh, these differences, their roots, their organizational roots, their ideological roots in my article published in Critical uh, Sociology um, with uh, some special attention on Bannon, but also uh, more explication of where the libertarian right is uh, coming from, from and why they're organizationally more powerful than uh, the more Keynesian uh, far-rightists. Oh, what's the of all of this? Well, significant job creation in construction would have created very different results, especially during the elections. They would have created, or at least started to create, I know four years is short, but they would have started to create a loyal social base for Trump. So, where do we see some instances of this? You know, we, we, I, I, this is, of course, a hypothesis, a quite speculative hypothesis. It's a counterfactual. But we do see signs of this. We do see indications of this. Building trade unions were already Trump supporters during his uh, four years and, uh, you know, before the 2016 elections. They had sided with Trump. And they declared the end of their support for Trump only a few days before the 2020 elections. And I'm quoting the unions, their, of, uh, their official leader, uh, word for word here. He said this was due to four years of broken promises. Now, you know that you know, American unions are, are pretty much you know, pragmatist and solidly on the center. They're definitely anti-left, but most of them were not Trumpists with the big exception of the building trades unions. And they withdrew their support from Trump only days before the 2020 elections. And uh, again, the, back, back to the counterfactual here, supported by the Turkish case, but also by history. So I, I, I'm arguing that an unstoppable expansion of this sector, of the construction sector, could have led uh, to an unstoppable regime. The strong historical precursor of this is Germany's infrastructural push in the mid to late 19. 30s. So, you know, as we know, the Nazis were not just only a fanatical regime. They were that, but they, they also uh, smartly built a loyal social base through infrastructure spending, you know, roads, railroads, lots of 
lots of business and lots of uh, worker, stable worker employment. So in contrast to the Nazis then, and in contrast to Erdogan too, Trump is lacking two really central elements here. So he doesn't have ideologically coherent militias. So the people who sieged the capital, they were too disoriented. And uh, I'll be saying more on this in a piece that's coming in new politics in a month, in mid-July, hopefully, where I try to show, you know, these people are not quite like fascists. I mean, they're, they're more far-right libertarian than fascist. So they're too dispersed to count as fascists, despite all of their racism. So Trumpism is lacking that, but it's also lacking a solid water base with material stakes in a possible Trumpist hegemony. And this uh, contrasts strongly with both Nazism and Erdoganism. So now uh, I'm wrapping up. So I'm now coming to the conclusion where I will answer the question I have been delaying. And um, excuse my non-answer, but it's, I'm going to strongly argue that the situation itself calls for a non-answer or a, a partial answer to this question, whether there is a stage. I'll, I'll say, I'll argue that there's a non-stage. There's an, there's, a, there's an unstable phase which cannot count as a stage. And I call this non-stage, I call this an unstable phase, uh, I, I call this unstable phase, neoliberal statism. So neoliberal statism, which is you know, secondary, secondarily neoliberal, primarily statist, it is an unstable phase rather than a proper stage. So how do I define this? I define this in distinction from both neoliberalism and state capitalism. So I'm, I'm drawing somewhat on you know, uh, Zia Önish's uh, recent a series of articles where he has argued that uh, Turkey is state capital. So, you know, 2010s Turkey. So late Erdoganism is state capitalist. I do not agree with that because in what I call uh, state capitalism or in what you know, some scholars call state capitalism, th there is heavy state ownership, maybe not in the entire economy, but at least among national champions and in key industries. So Turkey might be moving in that direction. So this is not a complete disagreement with Zia Önish either. So it's a partial disagreement. But in neoliberal statism, what happens is that not the ownership, but the control of enterprises and mega projects is transferred from the private to the public. And again, the clearest cases of this are Turkey and Russia, Russia being the clearer case. So I'm not you know, completely justified on excluding Russia from this paper, but you know, I, I don't have space for everything. So I, I had to focus on Erdoganism more than on Putinism. So what, what justifies calling this statism and not just embedded neoliberalism or deepened neoliberalism or uh, developmentalist neoliberalism, all, all of these other labels uh, that, that have been pretty widespread uh, in the last uh, five years or so? Well, it is statism, I insist, because the economy is now geared not to competitiveness, but to imperial and political aims. 
So politics and imperialism and political support define the major direction of the economy, not competitiveness. Okay? So why do I still call it neoliberal statism? Because this is still inserted in global neoliberalism. It is not outside global neoliberalism. Turkey is not outside global neoliberalism. And all of the limits and strengths of this statism is defined by global neoliberalism. And we can say that the Turkish economy has exhausted the advantages of what I have defined as stealth Keynesianism or embedded neoliberalism. And it is unable to fully embark on state capitalism. And I'm running out of time, so I, I won't be able to discuss why that is the case. But Turkey, based on its own dynamics, cannot become state capitalist. But this doesn't mean that neoliberal statism is a working formula. Neoliberal statism is prone to corruption. And it is unsustainable with its current structures. And this applies to both Russia and Turkey. But since Turkey is a smaller economy, it is more reliant on heavier cash flows. Uh, on, on the foreign cash flows, sorry, and more open to uh, corruption, so more open to clientelistic capitalism. So neoliberalism is being eroded not only by state capitalism, but also by clientelist capitalism. So there is this you know, uh, drift to a Gulf state-like path, which is uh, more predatory, as Peter Evans calls it, rather than state capitalist. There's a drift towards China, but uh, the, the main impetus is still more uh, neoliberal than uh, China and Saudi Arabia. But all of, all of this does not really add up to a, work, a, a sustainable model. And that's why the economy keeps swinging all the time. So one week we see a quote-unquote independent central bank. The other week we see a dependent central bank. Okay? So they, they can never decide. And this is not simply because uh, they are idiots or bad economists. It's because of the structural position that Turkey finds itself in, plus the heavy control of a far-right legacy. So it's not just you know, one man and the economists around him or the non-economists around him, but it's an intersection of Turkey's structural position in the world economy and its far-right uh, legacies that put it here. So I, I'll wrap up very quickly. Oh, so yeah, okay. Post 2018, we, we see the price of uh, all of this instability and what we see why this is a non-stage. It is, it is not sustainable as it is. So it's not just the GDP, just the aggregate, aggregate economy that's paying the price. Erdogan's main uh, core engine of growth, construction, pays a heavy price, uh, pays the heavy price of this non-stageness uh, or non-coherence of this economic model. Okay, so yeah, the, all of my central claims then are basically here. Yes, there are three stages and yes, we're somewhere beyond the third stage, but we are not at a fourth stage. So why is this even significant? Why don't we just remove 
Turkey from all of these generalizations and studied, uh, study it as a very sui generis case that has nothing to do with these realizations. Because just like Bismarckian Germany, uh, all the way up to fascist uh, Germany, Turkey and similar economies have the potential to undermine or start undermining uh, global neoliberalism worldwide. So they, they cannot destroy neoliberalism on their own, but, can, but they can precipitate the end of neoliberalism. So Turkey cannot put an end to global neoliberalism, but it, just like Bismarckian Germany and Nazi Germany, it can precipitate the end of global neoliberalism. And of course, um, yeah, maybe I'll wrap up this slide faster than I, I wish I would have, but maybe we can uh, open this up in the Q&A section. Um, so all of this, how this unfolds will depend on what the main state capitalist poll of the world economy does, what China does. Uh, it, it will depend on what Biden does. And uh, will it be a Biden-Sanders infrastructure overhaul or will it be a Biden-Butjij overhaul? Now that that uh, internal difference within the uh, American state will have huge ramifications for uh, Turkey's mega projects in the next 10, 15 years or so. And I'll just stop there so that you know we can have a conversation about this. And I hope I can open up some of these ideas. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you.